and the Grizzlies were, you know, they were a powerhouse 69-70, then faded for several years. But basketball was a monster, but I mean, people don't remember, like, Larry Kristoviak's days when, when he was here, you know, 82 through 86, they averaged 8,000 a game right. in Big Sky games. And they can't even get 8,000 in Adams Center anymore. But it was crazy. And football's playing at Dornblazer, a yeah. quote, temporary stadium that there have been talk of a new stadium building like they were originally talked about it, building out at Fort Missoula. There, have been, there, there was actually pictures of it in the 77 press guide, I think. And I'm thinking, this, this is not going to happen. <laughs> it did. And that's, frankly, what changed everything. Welcome to Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions. In this episode, we have a conversation with longtime SID at the University of Montana, Dave Guffey. Dave came to the University of Montana to take the head job of what was then Information Services in the fall of 1978. Gene Carlson was the head Grizz football coach. Mike Montgomery had just taken over as the head basketball coach. Guffey served as the head SID at UM for 37 years, making him the longest tenured Grizzly to appear in this series. In total, Dave Guffey attended, kept stats, and wrote summaries on more than 450 Grizzly football games. He missed just three in his 37 years on the job. And, as it turned out, the 1995 season happened to be almost exactly the midway point for his career. So Dave Guffey saw 17 years before the first Grizzly National Championship and then another nearly two decades afterwards, giving him perhaps the best perspective one could possibly have on the arc of Montana football, the university in general, and what it was to be front and center in the athletic department from the 1970s through the 2010s. Please enjoy this episode of Grizz Greats with former Montana Sports Information Director Dave Guffey. Well, Dave Guffey. In studio. Glad to have you, and thanks for coming all the way down here in person. It's great to see you. Appreciate you being here. How are you? I'm excellent. Pleasure to be in talking about the Grizzlies again. I haven't done it in a few years. Well, we got so much to cover. You are the SID at the University of Montana for 37 years, an amazing run starting in 78 all the way through the end of the 14-15 academic year. But you've been retired now five years or so yeah. in Missoula. So what what you been up to? What's it been uh, like being here, done at the university and kind of living your life? This fall is brutal with no football. Oh, man. <laughs> Even it's, retired, he's it's, saying it's, this. <laughs> it's like, it's, uh, you know, I live for Grizz football, too, and now at a different level. Being in the stands, of course, is completely different, but it's pretty cool. It was hard first year or two. But, uh, you know, hey, people ask you, what'd you do today? Well, let's see. I went and got a coffee. I read the paper. I went for a walk. It's maybe maybe went to a local brewery. In yeah. the that's, <laughs> that's my day. It's not very trying, believe me. But retirement is good. It, it is interesting, too, when you're so used to just the, the accelerated pace of oh, game man. days on Saturdays, right? I mean, so many people ask us. Well, doesn't that isn't that just terrible to like go to the game and you don't get a tailgate, you don't get a drink, and we're like, no, it's awesome because you get to be a part of this whole experience and you get to absorb the whole thing. But then, I mean, I haven't been to a game, a Big Sky game as a fan or just as an observer in in so long. And you, I'm sure that's tenfold. Yeah, so I mean, just being not in the press box, not handing out the stat sheets, what's that like? Well, you know, I'd, I'd had season tickets 
since Washington Grizzly Open, Section 204, or 104, excuse me, that never sat at them. <laughs> right. Until <laughs> 2015, they're pretty good seats, like 35-yard line. But, you know, the uh, press box is a pretty good view, too, as you guys know. But the thing about the press box is once it gets late November, December, that's a good place to be in the stands. It just goes to show how dedicated Grizz football fans are because some of those games are cold. No doubt. And uh, obviously that has to do with some of the home field advantage, especially in the playoffs. But nevertheless, yeah, it was quite an interesting experience. The key is to sit around fans who have a clue and aren't negative, and I sit around fans like that, which is very helpful if you know what I mean. Yeah, no (laughs) doubt. Uh, Dave, let's skip back a couple decades here. Okay. 1978, you came on to uh, to work at the University of Montana. How did that How did that transpire? Where were you prior to being in Missoula, and how did you get into that role? Well, I was a, I was a journalism major. I actually was the sports editor of my high school paper, my junior college paper, and at Fresno State. I went to Fresno State and got a job, a, a local job at a newspaper in Fresno, and I was a sports editor of a paper now defunct called the Fresno Guide, and um, I was in Los Angeles covering the, it was called the PC2A conference at that time, their preseason football meetings, and one of the Fresno State guys, a guy named Lynn Ellison, said, hey, University of Montana is an opening for a sports information director. You'd love Missoula. Ironically, Lynn was from Montana State, but he still, you know, he pushed me in that direction, and so out of the blue, I applied for the job. And uh, Having never been to Montana? Uh, no, I, I wasn't sure where it was. I yeah. thought it was somewhere near Canada. You, you were know, right. You really. were right about that. And yeah. I'm, dr- I'm driving across the uh, Madison Street Bridge going, wow, this is beautiful. You know, this is just interviewed. It was during football season. October of 78 is when I started. The Grizzlies were just coming off their first and only road win at Boise State. They'd beat Boise State 15-7. to 7. So I, I get in there, and everyone's just jacked. And the, the head coach at the time was a guy named Gene Carlson, former Grizz great, uh, who actually played baseball for the Yankees for a couple years. But anyway, I digress. But, but when I got here, as you alluded to earlier, Ryan, it was a basketball school. Football was struggling. Uh, Gene Carlson uh, was eventually let go fairly soon. And, and then uh, – you know, Larry Donovan was hired. I think I've worked for nine different football coaches wow. along the way. But, um, yeah, just I, I'd been in sports information at Fresno State. I was an intern for like four years, paid position. And I worked at, at the newspaper, too, at the Fresno Bee at the time. And then, then went to work for the Fresno Guide and, like, went for the job. And Harley Lewis uh, was the athletic director at the time, hired me. And my wife gone, Mia Andrews, gone on at the Missoulian, like, a few months later. And, and life was good. There's a lot of similarities between sports information and newspapers, but also a lot of differences, too. Was that a lot of times crossing the line, so to speak, is an interesting transition? What was your thought process like when oh, you decided to go to sports so info? so true. Sports information, you're allowed to root for the team. Right. <laughs> you, you guys are supposed to be neutral. It doesn't work that way. I mean, I, I wanted Fresno, the Bulldogs, Fresno State, sure. to win, whose head coach, by the way, was Jim Sweeney from Walkerville, Butte, America. and wow. And... Dennis Erickson was his offensive coordinator, had a great staff. Right. But, uh, you know, you, you get to know them and the players, and it's personal. And as an SID, you can be more blatantly uh, of, of a cheerleader kind of dude, which you are, right. which you're paid to do. That was the big difference, I think, 
that the fact the quote ethical issue of you know you can't root for the team you're covering even though you kind of do let's face it uh, you can you know you're all out of grizz when, when when I got the job and and that makes it a lot more fun a lot harder too when you lose but still a lot more fun yeah that dynamic is so interesting because you know people always ask us who you going for today we say well you know we're we're neutral observers but at the same time when you live in a community like Missoula you live in Montana. Well, you don't. You you would never want to cover a team that's just terrible. That's a bad experience as a reporter or a broadcaster or anything, yeah. right? I always say, but I always tell any guy that's ever interned intern for me or meant, uh, that I've mentored, I always say, if you're going to be a beat writer of any sort, the worst experience you could have is covering a mediocre team that doesn't have any answers. Yeah. If they're epically bad, there's optimism of how to get better. If they're epically good, that's super fun too. But like Montana State in 2015, covering that team, you know, preseason number six, and then watching them give up five million points and just get gashed and <laughs> yes. and go five and six. That's just brutal to cover because yeah. no one has any answers. Yeah. Uh, when you, uh, you you mentioned this already, but 1978, Mike Montgomery is the head basketball coach, men's basketball coach, yep. uh, who is a Hall of Famer now, yep. but was right on the front end of his career then, right. spent eight years at the University of Montana. And the school, as you said, it was a basketball-heavy school, Dahlberg-packed football, was middling, I guess, at best at that time. What was it like to sort of – see the transition of, of the University of Montana, which is still certainly a big basketball school, but moving from basketball to football. And did you recognize it as it was happening? Or was there some day where you look back and went, well, wait, what happened here? That's a good, that's a great question. And I, and I think about that all the time. You know, of course, Michael Ray Richardson had just graduated yeah. and Montgomery was promoted. He had been Jim Brandenburg's assistant. Brandenburg went to Wyoming and of course, before that was Judd Heathcote, who everyone knows he had a little success. I think he went, yeah, things went pretty well for Judd. Yeah, and yeah. he had a pretty good player named Magic. But anyway, <laughs> I, I digress. But yeah, Monty, one of the really cool stories to, about Monty to me was when he was hired, uh, he w- was named the basket, director of basketball operations as well as head coach. So Mike Montgomery hired Robin Selvig. Which is kind of a cool story. It is. And I think, I think Robin Selvig was hired like two or three months before me prior to that 78-79 season. But, uh, yeah, it, w- it was a basketball powerhouse, and it was, you know, the fa- it was packed. You had the zoo at, at basketball games. The students would run in. The minute the door was open, they'd run in. And, of course, they had great seats. They were, they were sitting on the side court, which are now reserved. And they, when, when the other team was introduced, they had, some, they had signage. They'd put up the Kaimans and not show their faces during the intros of the visiting team. It was an intense home court advantage, and the Grizz used it and won a heck of a lot of games because of that. The – the football and basketball overlay at that moment in time, interesting too, because football, a Division Two conference, until the creation of the FCS, or I guess Division One AA at that time, I think right nineteen seventy eight. I think I think yeah. your first year. Yeah. But then the Big Sky in basketball, a Division One conference vying for NCAA tournament bids. So it seems as not if not only was just Montana a basketball school, but the Big Sky itself was more identified as a basketball conference than a football conference at that time. What do you remember just about the overlay of the conference at that time? Oh, that's that's very true. And there were some really good basketball teams in the Big Sky Conference. Weaver State and Idaho, to name a couple. Uh, you know, Idaho State actually had, had a great uh, team a couple, two or three years before that with a, a seven-footer named Hayes. It was, a, you know, great center. But, yeah, it, it was totally about and, – and, you know, Boise State, I think, was a junior college at that time type of thing 
and 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 the Grizzlies were you know they were a powerhouse 69-70, then faded for several years. Mm. But basketball was a monster. But I mean, people don't remember like Larry Kristoviak's days when, when he was here. You know, eighty two through eighty six, they averaged eight thousand a game right. in Big Sky games, and they can't even get eight thousand in Adams Center anymore. But it was crazy. And football's playing at Dornblazer, a yeah. quote temporary stadium that. There have been talk of a new stadium building like they were originally talked about it building out at Fort Missoula. There have been there, there was actually pictures of it in the '77 press guide, I think. And I'm thinking this this is not going to happen. Right. It did, and that's frankly what changed everything. Colter, in 1993, the Grizz football team was looking to host its first playoff game of the decade and just its second season of playoffs in school history. As we know, you got to have some financial backing to guarantee a home game. And former First Security Bank president Bill Boucher stepped up, spearheading a group of local business owners to guarantee that bid for UM Athletics. And that commitment from First Security Bank to UM has never wavered. Bill Boucher, Gordy Fix, several other business owners around the city of Missoula certainly had a huge influence in stepping up. Certainly some of the first true believers in what Grizz football could become and what they could mean to the Missoula community. Two years later, in 1995, the University of Montana had turned that local optimism into national prominence. The Grizz won the Division I AA National Championship, the first national title in the history of the university. And 25 years later, First Security Bank is still proud to sponsor the Grizzlies. First Security Bank, a presenting sponsor for Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions, a 25-part podcast series remembering that epic 1995 season. First Security Bank, proud sponsor of Grizz Athletics and the University of Montana. Going back to your role as SID, now the University of Montana, there's three, four SIDs, yeah. and, and the sports are divvied up. When you got hired, were there multiples, or and you had certain sports, or were you the one and only? It was me. You for everything. It was me. I had a couple graduate students, assistants, and then I finally did get an assistant. But yeah, there's there's uh, essentially two people doing what I did, covering football and men's basketball, with with a couple other sports. That would have been great just to cover football and maybe tennis or something else. But it's changed dramatically, and and a lot of that has to do with social media and the net, you know, the net getting stories out after the game instead of like the next day. Things change dramatically. Electronics changed the business. That's one thing that we really wanted to talk to you about because the your time. The, the technological evolution during that time, I think, I mean, it, it lines up almost perfectly, right, with all the changes that happened in newspapers, in the way that you write stories, the way that you print stories, the pressure to get stuff out, the social media, all that stuff. What are the biggest changes you oh, remember seeing? Incredible. You're right. Um, well, you'd type out all the, all the copy. You'd bring it to the print shop, and they'd transcribe it, and they'd lay it out for you. And then, you know, eventually, I'd, I used a, a royal typewriter. <laughs> And eventually, there's computers, which you had to learn yourselves. Then there's PageMaker, which, you know, you, you're familiar with that. You essentially are putting the press guides together in your office. And I had an administrative assistant do that. I never learned PageMaker. Really old school. Didn't want to learn PageMaker. But, uh, yeah, and just the, everything changed so fast. And, I, you know, you try to learn and keep up with it. You guys are in the thick of it, of course, a big part of your business as well. But The art of the media guide. 
Bill Laverty's always teased me because I've saved all of his media guides. I still have all the ones that you gave me back in the day, too. And, you know, going to the Big Sky kickoff, there's always the big table of media guides. And more and more people don't pick them up because they just have it online. They don't need it. I got it on my phone, whatever. But I save them because I think that they're memorabilia. I think they're cool. And you guys put so much work into it. I mean, we have a whole stack right here. But just the art of the media guide. I mean, what do you remember about just putting those things together? We've been going through the archives of yours. I mean, the 95 and 96 media guides has been sort of like our, roadmap for this whole thing and it's so cool to look through them what do you remember about just putting all those sorts of things together it was very rewarding i loved it it was a pain in the butt too a lot of, <laughs> no doubt it was, it was a lot of work because i did it myself i did the press guide myself all the content i mean it's basically like writing like a 150 page book right yeah, you laid it out and you did you know 100 bios and this is the last actually the last one i printed out this is brady gustafson on the cover I brought think, it with i think it's 2016 but I have, you know, from the year I started, I had 78 to 16, and I was really bummed when they stopped printing them out because that, to me, was kind of, if rewards may be the wrong way to say it, but you got to see a finished product. No question. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't want to brag. I won a lot of awards for my publications thanks to University of Montana Print Shop, of course. It's superb. Um, I'm interested is in the role as the SID and – what is something like the the liaison between the athletic department and the coaches and athletes and the media and also all the things that you do internally by way of communication and then also the the journalistic aspect that you have there. It's an interesting relationship that you have, a working relationship with coaches where on one hand you kind of work for them and do what they say, but on another hand you – maybe prod them along and encourage them, hey, this is something that you should consider doing, whether it's a media hit or whether it's this this or that. And I'm sure different coaches had uh, different levels of relatability and relational yeah. <laughs> uh, sort of aspect to it. What was it like to you to try and find that ground with the coaches that you worked with, and especially the football coaches at the U, to, to, to carry on a professional working relationship? That's a, that's a great question, Ryan, because it's, it's it was really only relevant once in the nine football coaches I work with. I had an issue with one. Most of them got it. Some of them didn't like doing the media stuff. They thought it was a pain in the butt and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Mick Dennehy did not like doing media stuff, but he did. He was really good at it. But uh, Larry Donovan, the second coach, and I did not get along that great because it was really difficult to, to corral him and get him to do things. And, uh, and yet – I think, and I only had one or two players ever refuse to do interviews. And later on in my career, I figured that out. I always make a presentation before the teams, before the season, that you are required to do interviews unless you have some kind of good, really logical good reason for it. When, when you get an interview request, you are expected to do that. And I, I changed that after I had an issue with, with a basketball player who basically didn't want to do interviews because he wasn't confident enough in, in his self in himself to articulate, yeah. but uh, it, very rare. And in most cases, they get it. They get it's part of the part of the deal, man. And plus, they get paid for it. Like especially the radio contract, no doubt, is very very attractive here. I think for for our level, the the art of being a sports information director. I think now it's it's I don't want to say digressed. That's the wrong word, but it's it's gone to this point where you're almost a statistical gopher. You're just on Twitter all the time. You're putting out all these stats. But the the media relations part, the 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 relationships in the community part, it seems like that has maybe gone by the wayside a little bit. I mean, it, talk about that element of it because 
making sure that the reporters, the media, hey, we need to we need to have at least a professional relationship here. It seems like you needed to be the liaison in that element. It became very personal. I got to be very good friends with a lot of beat writers right. and, of course, radio play-by-play guy. You know, he travels everywhere like I did sure. back in the day. Right. You know, I, I think I, I missed three football games in 37 years with uh, two, two, two births and a wedding. <laughs> two, my two boys were had the audacity to, get, to be born during the I football mean, season. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but this seems like their father's problem, not, yeah, not yeah. their problem, right? I mean, it's one of those things you don't think about when you're, uh, when you're 20, what, 27 years old and start at the University of Montana. But... Uh, yeah, the, it it ha, I don't it wasn't as fun when I left the profession. It really right, wasn't. It right. was it was more impersonal, uh, less much less interaction with media, and you know we did a weekly Grizzly Den luncheon that I hosted for years and years and years with you know thirty forty hardcore people, and I really enjoyed that. And you get to know the, you know the hardcore fans on a personal level, and I and traveling wise a lot of. The, Families traveled with their sons to games, and they'd be on the team plane. You get to interact with them and get to meet them, and and uh, I really I really miss that part of it. But it's definitely it's become much more impersonal. I, I think, unfortunately. At Blackfoot Communications, we're experts at keeping your business technology up and running. From networks and security to communications and 24-7 support, our team works with you to understand your technology concerns, then deploys the right solution for your unique needs. Whether your company is just starting out or is looking to take that next step, Blackfoot is here to help. For more information, visit grizzgreats.com or call 866-541-5000. Blackfoot, connect to more. Dave, I want to shift into uh, to what is the Don Reed era, and then, of course, what the point of this entire series is is that '95 team. You've you have you know at that point what 18 years that you've been at the University yeah. of Montana yeah. going into the '95 season, and so you have seen s- several different coaches. First of all, come through the football hallways, and then Don Reed who gets there, and, and the program's okay, but he's clearly building this thing. And then some guy named Dickinson shows up, and that seems to go pretty well. But you have a front row seat in in this to to see the building of the program and the interaction with Coach Reed, with the players, and so on. Could you sense in the, in the the sort of early '90s and on the way through the the growth and the direction pointing up for that program? Well, you know, one really interesting aspect of Don Reed is I'm sure that you don't know this. When Gene Carlson was let go, Harley Lewis really wanted to hire Don Reed instead of Larry Donovan. Don Reed was in in the hunt for the position initially, and then he pulled out. I don't know why. I've heard several rumors why. You know, he was still at Portland State at the time, and and uh, but for some reason, Harley was really enamored with him. And then they hired Larry Donovan, who you know who, who had a background. He, he played football at Nebraska, was a coach at assistant coach at Kansas. Didn't have a lot of Montana. Connections, but then in in 1985, uh, Larry Donovan's last year, the Grizzly coaching staff was told to their faces, "You win the last game." This is probably I shouldn't t- say this, but this is what happened: You win the last game of the season, we'll give you one more year. We'll give you a year in the stadium. They go to NAU. They win 32-31, the Grizzlies, and they're fired the next day. Hmm. And and I get a call, and hey, we got to announce this and. Then, of course, Don Reed was hired. The timing was perfect for him because of the stadium. And, of course, 
he never had a losing season in his 10 years. But to me, the probably the biggest deal was 89, advancing to the semis, even though we got hammered at Georgia Southern and Statesboro. We're thinking, yeah, you know, we're there, but we're, we've got a ways to go. And then we get to 93, and that team was, God, they were like, I don't know, 13 and one or something. They lose to Delaware 49-48 in Washington Grizzly. Yeah. But that's the infamous Dickey South Dakota State game to open the season. And and who he brings us back and we scored 35 unanswered points to beat them. I think it was 52-48. And I'm going, wow, this guy is the real deal. And then 94, Dave gets hurt at Boise State and he doesn't play in the semis at Youngstown State. Ironically, Youngstown hosts Boise State and wins the national championship. We we could have played Boise State again on a neutral for '94. We could have won the whole thing, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah. That set the stage for '95, though. And go ahead. The the overlay between Harley Lewis and Larry Donovan into Don Reed is an interesting uh, mm-hmm. element of this too, because a lot of people say that Larry Donovan had a lot of communication with Harley Lewis. He was kind of a two headed monster in terms of the dream that was Washington Grizzly Stadium on campus. But then Larry Donovan never really got to ex- experience right. Washington Grizzly in its glory. But j- just that plan, what do you remember about when they were making the plan and maybe the positives? But there was a lot of pushback, too, early on in terms of putting the stadium on the campus. I, I'm, I'm not going to say that Larry w- wasn't part of, of getting that stadium done because he did have kind of kind of a relationship with Dennis Washington as well. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, they had a great 81 season, went 7-3, and three, and their, two of their losses by, were by a point. They lost 7-6 to Weber and 14-13 to Eastern, and that was a playoff team that could have been pretty good. 82, they win the whole thing, go to the playoffs, but have to go to Idaho and get thumped. But uh, Larry had a couple good years, and he was part of the deal, and and uh, I think he kind of got the rug pulled out a little from him on that deal and didn't get an opportunity there and maybe deserved it, but he, he, he had that one winning season. And then, then 82, when they – Went to the playoffs. They were six and six, but I mean, he had backed and then just went downhill from there. I think in 1985 the Grizzlies were like one and seven in the Big Sky. Then they hired Don. Okay, and the other really interesting aspect that year, 85, we, the Grizzlies had played Army in the Mirage Bowl in Tokyo, and and Army ran ran the the uh, the option, and Larry Donovan and his staff were completely enamored by it. The, so. The Grizzlies, this was 84, sorry, so 85, Montana runs the option. Wow. And then Don Reed gets there and, like, they start throwing the ball. They they set all sorts of passing records with the same quarterback, Brent Peace, right. who run the option the year before, <laughs> and then go six and four. And then, of course, I, you know, I think they've had one losing season since then. Yeah. Something like that. Something crazy like that. The... Uh there's so many confluence of events, the opening of the stadium, the hiring of this dynamic coach, the offense like you talked about. I mean, that was something I think excited Missoula across oh, yeah. the board. Yeah. But do you remember feeling it starting to build when Don took over and, and the stadium opens and then all of a sudden Pease has his great breakout and then it just starts this sort of build up to all these great quarterbacks coming to a, a head with Dave Dickinson? I, I really do. You could You could feel it. Of course, the stadium was – was huge, even though I think the capacity Washington Grizz was 12-5 then. You know, if it was a good day, you could sit in the end zones on the grass because there were no seats there. They had three different expansions in Washington Grizzlies since then. 
But you you know the thing about Don was he was like he was like your granddad or your best friend, and the players loved him. Players loved him. Media loved him. I loved him. Everybody loved him. And then he won too. Yeah. And and you know didn't win dramatically that '89 season as I I think that really started it going to Statesboro, even though we got thumped. Thinking, guy, you know we're we're getting there. And then Dickinson, one of my favorite Dave Dickinson stories is. Uh, Tommy Lee was our offensive coordinator, Hawaiian mm-hmm. dude who was a great recruiter and great coach. And he yells at me. I walk by him in the hallway in in the, the Adam Center, and he goes, "Dave, come here, come here, look at this film." And Tommy had his eye issues, so he always had sunglasses, even though it was dark. He's watching this game film of this high school quarterback from Great Falls, and he goes, "I come here. I want you to watch this guy. Tell me what you think." And I I watch a few highlights of Dave Dickinson at, at uh, Great Falls High, and I'm going like. Man, he's pretty damn good. He goes, you know, I think he's only like five ten, but I really like him too. And and then of course the rest is history. He proved to be a genius, and the talent level it started to increase. You know, but back then they did not run the football very much. They just threw the heck out of it, and had great wide receivers. A lot of them are still in the record books, and and it worked. I don't know if it would work anymore. But uh, you go from running the option to throwing for 3,000 yards by Brent Peace, and he had a, a wide receiver named Mike Rice out of Idaho who was, who was outstanding as well. But I, things looked up, and if you were to tell me we'd win a national championship you know, a few years later, I'd say, oh, man, I don't know if we can do that. Let's just win a big sky championship, you know? But it's interesting because in 93 – you know, you have that the, the run to you know against Delaware, or the great epic game, and yeah. one of those somebody's somebody's going to win it, somebody's not. Dickinson injured, can't play in the playoff run in, in you know the following year in '94. Yeah. But some, I mean, a lot of people have said, "Hey, man, that '94 team was every bit as good as probably the '95 team won." It was. Uh, was there pressure in 1995? Like, hey, you know, like we've we've maybe been a victim of circumstance or the ball didn't quite you know go our way or whatever but at some point we gotta we gotta get this thing done or was it still uh you know hey however you know if we can make it to the national tournament and 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 win a couple games wouldn't that be great like what was the mindset if you remember how the feeling around the team i never felt that there was really any real pressure there but what i what i do remember and i wrote myself notes that with that 1995 thing because you know, I, I think a lot of people, it's been, it's 35 years ago. That's a long time ago. Right. But people don't realize, you know, the, the Grizz, the way they dominated in the playoffs there, and and then to advance and host for the next round, they had one of the top seeds lost at home. So the Grizz, because of the, I think they were a fifth seed, because they were a fifth seed, they get to host again. Yeah. That happens again. Troy State, I think, was undefeated. They get beat again. So the Grizzlies get to host a semi for the first time in history, win that one. 70-14, yeah. the <laughs> and, and, and the first two were both shutouts. Yeah, and the right. first time in FCS playoff history, that the team had back-to-back shutouts. And yeah, and then, then they go to 95, but they have to go to Marshall, yeah. at Marshall, and uh, which, by the way, is still the biggest crowd in FCS playoff history, 32,106. Because it was it was insane. There was standing room only, and it was intense. And uh, you know the Grizzlies just I think their defense was a little underrated that year to hold them to twenty. But you know it took what was 
39 seconds to go and Larson hit that field goal. It wasn't like a it wasn't a gimme. No. But I never felt the pressure, even though we were so close, the Grizzlies, to winning, especially in in '94, you know, going to Youngstown in the semis. Youngstown coached by Jim Tressel at the time was having huge success and moved on to Ohio State. But um yeah, I, I never felt the pressure. Donna Reed would not let you feel the pressure. Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions, is sponsored by First Security Bank and Coulter. While First Security has long been a supporter of the University of Montana and UM Athletics, people might be surprised to know how much First Security Bank, in fact, influenced the University of Montana program and the path they were on directly. Back in 1993, the Grizz were on their way to their second ever berth in the Division I AA playoffs. Previously, in 1989, the only other time Montana had made it to the Division I AA playoffs. And at that time, first round home games awarded via a bidding process. And so to help support the Grizz football team, as well as fortify the faith throughout the community of Missoula, Bill Boucher, former president of First Security Bank, stepped up to the table to help the University of Montana guarantee any potential revenue lost for the first round of the playoffs. And of course, that was recouped in a big way as the University of Montana in 1993 then started the first of 17 straight playoff berths. And in 1995, that local optimism was turned into national prominence as Montana made a run all the way to the 1995 National Championship. First Security Bank is proud to sponsor Grizz Greats and this 25-part podcast series commemorating the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions for Security Bank a proud supporter of Grizz Athletics and the University of Montana. One of the best parts about Division One AA football, FCS football, is when you see in the FBS, a lot of times when you lose, all of a sudden it's over. Your, your national championship hopes are over. You might still be able to, I mean, I guess this day and age you might be able to still scrape your way into the Sugar Bowl or the Rose Bowl, but likely if you lose, especially late, you're not going to get into the college football playoff or you know pre- previous BCS area, you're not going to get the national championship. But oftentimes at this level of football, a loss can be the turning point. I remember when I was in school, you had that 08 loss to Weber State, and that just ignited those guys, and they went all the way to the national title, beat Weber State in the playoffs. This 1995 season, there was that loss at Idaho. Do you, do you remember that? And yeah, was, that, was that a spark for those guys? I, I think we had two losses. They're both in the Palouse. One was right, Washington, Washington State, State, one yep. was at Idaho. And I, yeah, I, I, that's, that's a great point. Yeah. And just, I just, the mentality had changed so much. They, they just didn't think they could lose anymore. And, and Dickinson, the story goes, and I've been, I've got players have verified it. That South Dakota State game, he told them in the huddle if anyone thinks we can't win, get out of here. Okay, we're going to win this thing. You know, Matt Wells told me that, and some other players told me that. And, and that guy was one of the most intense competitors I've ever seen in my life. And, and uh, not to mention, he, just, he, he could just read defenses. I mean, he, he'd throw the ball. He was incredible. He, what, he passed for 11,000 yards. But the other weird thing is, those first three playoff games, he only played like in the first half. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, and then... At Marshall, he gets sacked ten times. He gets beat up, big time. He gets pounded. Yes, and and uh, but they hung in there and got the chipper. You know, Dave, in, in your role as being a, what I what I would call front line with the team, players, coaches, and and so on. 
Uh, you travel with them. Nobody, nobody is closer to the team without being on the team, so to speak, than the SID is. When they win the national championship, and you've seen the growth of the program in general, 10 years with Don Reed being the head coach and growing up to that, and the obviously the excitement, the elation, the, the, the only time that it can be done the first time, and they're yeah. there doing it. What do you remember about maybe the emotion of it, the party afterwards, the, the uh, excitement of, of you know, the immediate aftermath of the game, the trip back to Missoula and all that? Oh, yeah, I was I was in tears after the game, and it's uh, I learned a valuable lesson at Marshall. After the game, I'm running out in the middle of the field, jumping down with the rest of the players, and I get a helmet right in the mouth. I, I got you can see it in these pictures. I got I'm bleeding for two hours. I, I, I've never been involved in a postseason celebration since I learned my lesson there. But one of the one of the several cool memories. One of the coolest was. Walking with with Coach Reed and, and, and Dave Dickinson to the interview room, post game interview room, and and uh, I say, well, Dave, I can finally tell you, man, you, you won the Walter Payton Award. He did not know. I'd known for two weeks, mm. and for some stupid reason, they sat on it. They weren't going to announce it till after the game, and he looked at me and kind of nodded like that and said something to the effect of, "It's about time." <laughs> and, and I said, "You're right." And then going in the locker room, listening to Don Reed talk, and uh, it was incredible. The flight back, you get, you get back to the airport. There's there's a lot of people at the airport. Yeah. And then, of course, me being who I am, I went downtown. Yeah. Well, it was just to, it was it was think. insane. It was so much fun. Then the next day, they had the big function uh, in Adams Center. Uh, you know, the, the team trophy, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the very last part of it, Wayne Hogan, the athletic director at the time, had made a decision to retire number 15. So they announced that. They had 15 frame for Dave Dickinson, and he announced that Dickie's number would be retired, and people went crazy. Uh, and and it, it, was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was one of the best moments of my life, for sure, easily. And to be that close in 93, 94, and then, then finish it off. Your question about feeling the pressure, you know, that's a great question. Maybe in the back of their minds they did. I don't know. I never felt like it was part of the deal, but I think you could be right, Ryan. The University of Montana, to that point, had had some unbelievable stars, both as coaches, especially on the men's basketball side of things, but also men's basketball players. I mean, Michael Ray Richardson, you mentioned him. Number four overall pick, Larry Kristoviak, was a draft pick, played in the NBA forever. But Dave Dickinson stands alone as this star, unseen in, in the University of Montana's history. What elements went into making him the star that he was? He, he's one of the most competitive people I've ever met in my life. And I, I know talking to his friends, like high school friends, if it was golf, if it was poker, if it was – he did not want to lose. He, I mean, he was – and the other thing about Dave Dickinson, when he was – you know, he, he was pre-med. He was, he was accepted. Right. He, he was going to be, become a doctor. But what I used to, I used to love it, and people, he'd, he'd come off the bus with his glasses. He's, you know, five, ten and a half. People, is that your, who's that, your accountant? <laughs> <laughs> That's our quarterback. <laughs> and you're going to eat those words after the game. And uh, he, uh, he just, <sighs> plus, you know, he had guys like you know, Guernsey and Earhart and, and Shallon Baker and, and uh, Pacheco and Joe Douglas, who was just a great one. Wellesley had some great receivers. And the running backs were, were more receivers, like the Kelly right. Stinsroods and Josh Brannons and people like that. They were, they were more receivers than anything else. And the defense, I think, was a little underrated because the offense was so f just dynamic passing-wise. 
from that point, obviously the University of Montana becomes a juggernaut and is is probably the program for the next 15 years at the division you know one double a and then fcs level seven national championship appearances another title to go with it what from that moment forward what was it like to have been part of a program or working with a program that was an up-and-comer that then arrived that then became the dominant force in in the country It, it was winning was great it was there was a lot more demand on sports information, especially from the national media. You know, once you get to that level, you know you you hear from a lot of different people, and and uh, the it's the demand was part of the deal. But I mean, I loved it. I loved the attention. I, the players loved the attention too. I mean, how would you not, you know, love going in to talk to ESPN before before a TV game? And and back in the day, we were never on TV. Grizzlies were never on TV. They, one televised game was the Grizz Cat game. Bruce Parker, the SID from Montana State, would do play-by-play, and I'd do color, mm. just to give you an idea. Okay. Yeah. And then now, if they're not televised, people just go insane. People right. are so spo- <laughs> are so spoiled. But that's one of the things is the winning changed dynamically the tele- the media coverage, television coverage, and and the national coverage. But I believe the Grizzlies are the most the winningest program in the two thousands. Of course, North Dakota State is like ridiculous. They're yeah. knocking on every door. Yeah. Yeah. At Blackfoot Communications, we're experts at keeping your business technology up and running. From networks and security to communications and 24-7 support, our team works with you to understand your technology concerns, then deploys the right solution for your unique needs. Whether your company is just starting out or is looking to take that next step, Blackfoot is here to help. For more information, visit grizzgreats.com or call 866-541-5000. Blackfoot, connect to more. It was almost an instant shift, right, from being the team that was trying to affirm itself as an FCS power, chasing teams like Youngstown State, Georgia Southern, um, even Boise State. But then, you know, Boise State, Nevada, Idaho, they move out of the league. And and then all of a sudden, Montana wins this national championship. Then they are sort of the Goliath. And then the next 15 years, unprecedented success. I mean, you mentioned 119 wins in the 2000s, seven trips to the national championship game in 14 years. Uh, and then one national championship in 2001, but it, it seems as if the expectations even far exceeded what the accomplishments were. were and, and that's the most compelling part about maybe analyzing Grizz Nation is even 14 and one with a loss to Richmond in the national championships not good enough. Oh yeah, no. The the analogy I like to use back in the day, once Boise State left, we became the Boise State of the Big Sky. Everybody right. hated Boise State because the playoff system was based on the bid system. Mm-hmm. If you bid a lot of bucks, you're going to host a game. And, of course, that changed with the neutrals, Chattanooga specifically. And uh, every then everybody wanted to beat Montana because, the, I mean, Bobby Bobby Howe, when, when his run was ridiculous. Ridiculous, I mean. Yes. Not to mention seven straight league championships. Seven, he was he was in three national championship games, and you know should have won at least one of them. At I least think. one, yeah. Villanova twenty three twenty one. But I mean, two, two and five in the, in the chipper is is deceiving. And yet, what Hauk did here, and believe me, he's going to do it again. I I believe, but. Um, I lost my train of thought. You got to be going. Oh no, but I mean, it, no, it, 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 it's it's true. It's true. But I wanted to ask you about your role in all of that because 
having a flagship program within a league like the Big Sky is so important. And I know that talking to guys around the league who were maybe in administrative roles back in the early 90s, when Idaho and Nevada and Boise State left, where are we going to go? What are, what are we going to do? And then Montana has this epic run, and the Big Sky is able to basically hitch its wagon to the Grizz. And everybody's been chasing the Grizz ever since. And I know that the last decade hasn't been up to par in terms of Grizz expectations, but it's still an unbelievable benchmark. Everybody wants to catch Montana. But just the, the role of the sports information director in helping affirm that spot as the kind of the flagship leading athletic department in the league. What, what was that like for you? It was, well, the, the one, talking about television, you know, like if you're if you're going to be on national television, I mean, you're in the playoffs, I don't know how many years in a row we were. I think we were 24 appearances, but. Yeah, 17 in a row. Thank you. Yeah. And and so you're, 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 you're talking to ESPN, you're talking, so when, whenever you, it's a TV game, even you know, even if KPAX or KCI are doing it, you have to arrange for interviews with your coordinators, with your head coach, with players before the game. That changed dramatically. You had to, you know, because it's hard to do. It's logistically, and and but that was one of the cool things about it. I mean, you're, you know, you're you're talking to a, a national broadcaster via teleconference from Coach Reed's office or or Coach Denny's office or Coach Houck's office or you know, it's Coach Glenn's office, and it's uh, it just became part of the routine. And back in the day, it was like you you know, it's hard to believe that it happened, and it happened pretty fast, really. One of the last things I'd like to talk to you about, you mentioned, you know, the, the players loved Coach Reed, the media loved Coach Reed, you loved Coach Reed, yep. but you, you know, player-coach relationships, there's a there's a dynamic to that where you're not up here, okay? It's just never, that's never going to be the case, even if it's even if it's a wonderful and, and nurturing relationship. You, obviously, have a professional relationship with all the coaches, but also are a peer of the coaches. You're, yeah. you're another adult, an adult male in this, you know, in this setting. What was your what was it like to work with Don Reed specifically over the course of time day in and day out? What was he like? <laughs> he, he was ridiculous. He was ridiculously nice. You'd come Ryan say if, say you got to practice at, you know 15 minutes late and you, god Dave I got, I got here late I had to do an interview at Sentinel High School or and I really wanted to talk to Blaine McElmurray today or I mean, I'd go tell Don Blaine come over here and talk to Ryan. It's that's what he did. Mm. I never had a head coach do that. I'm sorry. Never. But Don Reed, would, he, <laughs> if you're 11 seconds late for Bobby Houck, it's over. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> he, you better be early on the team bus going somewhere too, or you ain't right. going, or you're going on your own. No, he he, he was a lot more militant. But but Don was just looser, and and yet I I remember I re, I listened to to his pregames occasionally. I listened to his pregame uh, against Boise State. The, the game, we had 10 picks against Boise State and just shellacked them. It was, I like, I wanted to go out and play. Don yeah. Reed went from, like, Don Reed grandpa dad to this guy. He had me fired up. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he was, he could get you going. He, he could, he, he know where to, and, and he was also <laughs> terrible with names. He wouldn't, he wouldn't say, hey, Wellesley, come here. Say, hey, number five, come here. It, it was one of the jokes that people had about him. But uh, they still loved him because, uh, he, you know, he, there was nothing phony about the man. He he was a real deal, and he had a great staff too, you know, like Sowers and Dennehy, and just some great great assistant coaches. Who you know, Bob Beers was an assistant back then. Flew grad Joe Glenn was an assistant. Mm-hmm. So he had a great staff, great recruiters, and got a lot of kids out of Oregon back then because of his connection with Oregon. But also got 
a lot of the key Montana players, and and now the Bobcats are getting some of those guys too, which I think has really helped them big time. The staff element of it is so interesting too because of the influence they've all had on college football. I mean, you've seen the heights that guys like Brent Pease rose to. You know, Jerome Sowers, it's, it's a very rare occasion for somebody to be a head coach somewhere for 20-plus years like yeah. he was. You know, Mick Denny went to be on be a head coach. Joe Glenn, you know, all these guys had solid success. Robin Flugard had such a great career too. Do, is Don Reed the connecting factor? I mean, do you think he had that much influence on the success everybody else had after him? I, I, I do. Plus, well, Don was such a veteran coach. He had no, you know, he had been the actually been the head man at Oregon at one time, but he had connections with like he's a really good friends with Riley, you know, the former former Oregon State coach and Nebraska, Riley, coach, et cetera. Yeah. And, yep. and he had a lot of connections and with high school coaches as well. So he had this this chemistry with them. And his other assistant coaches had different connections elsewhere, uh, and they recruited just they recruited better players. They just did, and and uh, they got a little lucky with some. The Hawaiian connection with Tommy Lee. They got some great kids out of Hawaii too. But it's about recruiting. It's about players, and and that's why I I think Bobby Halco will, will get it done there. He, he's a great recruiter, and he, like he's a hard ass. He's a militaristic hard ass. But players love him, too, because guess what? You win, you love whoever's coaching you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Have you considered – because to me, my family moved to Missoula in 1993, and I remember being a kid watching this 1995 National Championship game at the Wilma, and then I was hooked. I, I got to go I gotta go to all the Grizz games. Any neighbor that has tickets, okay. And then all of a sudden, my buddies are playing for the Grizz. Now my parents get season tickets. But it seems as if – this moment when Montana won the 1995 National Championship was this tipping point for the University of Montana, for the athletic department, for the city of Missoula. Have you considered just the impact overall that this 95 championship team had just on this community at large? It changed everything. It changed it changed perception of football, too, of course. But economically, I mean, you, you look at what it's done for, for, for Missoula and the area, and, and, of course, the revenue that it brings in now is crazy, and that's why this COVID 19 thing is just devastating to the athletic department the lack of money and and you know let's say everything's up in the air but yeah that changed everything probably the biggest irony of everything to the 95 season is our athletic director god love him wayne hogan decides to change the school colors the next right after the next year we have so we have that great grizz encounter at the stadium and we're wearing which we're actually the original school colors, sure. but you go, I mean, some of those 95 dudes did not like that and still don't like that. You go from copper, the copper color came from Jack Swarthout because he had been an assistant coach at Texas. He became the AD and football coach here, ran the option. He changed the school colors, and then then uh, Wayne Hogan changed it back to the original. If you look at Wild Bill Kelly's Letterman's jacket in the Hall of Champions, it's, it's gold and maroon. His like 1926 Letterman sweater is in the trophy case. That was the original colors, but people like you just won a national championship, changed colors. Not very good timing, but it's worked out okay. <laughs> I think so. I think it's grown on people. And what what school anywhere has has the thro- like the color throwback right. thing? Right. A lot of yeah. teams can go back to old styles or whatever, but uh, there's not many. There's not many that have that for sure. Uh, well, Dave. I believe this will be true uh, in the course of this series. There's nobody that we will talk to that uh, has had, certainly that we've talked to yet, or will have a longer tenure 
than the one that you had at the University of Montana, those 37 years. And so your perspective on this from well before to well after the 95 season, which was really in the first third, amazingly, of your time at the University of Montana, is very much appreciated. Dave, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I didn't use my notes as much as I should have, but you guys have a pretty good grasp of Grizzly football and its history, too. So you made it a lot easier. Thank you. This has been Grizz Greats with former University of Montana Sports Information Director Dave Guffey. Grizz Greats marches on. Grizz Greats, a 25-part podcast series commemorating the 25th anniversary of the University of Montana's 1995 National Championship team. You can find Grizz Greats anywhere that you subscribe to podcasts, so please rate, review, subscribe, continue to listen. Grizz Greats is presented to you by Blackfoot Communications and First Security Bank of Missoula.